Hi, I'm Amy. And I'm Marcella. And we are both transracial and transnational adoptees, as well as licensed clinical social workers and trauma therapists. We have dedicated our lives to shedding light on the complexities of adoption and the systems responsible for them. We have seen both personally and professionally the silent and overt struggles brought on by this trauma, and we are determined to do our part to bring about healing. We know that some of the information we share and topics we unpack may be triggering and uncomfortable at times, but we feel the only way to promote change is to be honest by sharing our truths and elevating the voices of those in our community. We hope you will join us on this journey of listening and learning with an open heart and an open mind. Welcome to Adoptee's Dish. Hey everybody, welcome back to Adoptee's Dish. This is Amy. And this is Marcella. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode. We are still hightailing it through National Adoption Awareness Month. We're like halfway there at this point. So sending lots of love and gentle energy to all of you. We have another amazingly special guest here today with us. We are so excited. Amy Barker D'Alessandro is here with us. She is a fellow adoptee. She also works with this population. And so we are so excited to have you. Again, I'm here to add one out with the two Amy's over here. So Amy, thank you for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. It's so exciting. I I actually met Amy. Our paths crossed like almost a year ago. We were on a panel together discussing adoptees and mental health. And, you know, when Amy and I were figuring out ways to um, really amplify adoptee voices over NAM, you were one of the first names that I was like, we got to we gotta get her back and figure out how to collaborate again. So thank you so much for doing this. Of course. I'm so glad we, we kept staying connected so that we could collaborate in the future. And here we are. Absolutely. I know Marcella was so excited when she met you. And I'm I'm so happy that finally the day has come where we can all connect and, and record this episode. So I would love to just start, I think, from the beginning. Do you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about you and your history and the work that you do? I do not mind at all. Um, So I am an adoptee from the Baby Scoop era uh, in 1965, and I met my birth mother when I was 23 years old, and it was right after I gave birth to my son and placed my son. Mm -hmm. So they actually came into the hospital room and uh, told me they found my birth mother while I was in the midst of making a relinquishment um, plan for my son. Oh, wow. So that's, yeah, let's get started right off there. Right? So, I feel like we all just took a big deep breath at the I exact know. same time. Like, whew. Yeah. yeah. Talk about worlds colliding in this experience, mm-hmm. right? Like, wow. Mm-hmm. And in the work that I do, um, which now I started off working with kiddos coming out of foster care and being placed in permanent homes and helping them attach, attune, attach in their new homes and did that work for about 10 years. Love it. I still have some of the kids that I started with on my caseload, but I transitioned uh, more into, well, I got a little older. So it was a little, I didn't want to sit on the floor and play the games as much anymore. And I got also got my teeth really sunk into the stories and um, wanting to provide, as you guys know, there's just not enough people doing this work. Um, And it's so pervasive, the 
adoption trauma just hits every every facet of our lives and to not have knowledgeable therapists working with people uh, during some of the darkest days. I, I just have been very motivated to be able to better communicate what the experience is on both sides as an adoptee and a birth parent and um, just what it's like for me specifically growing up in an environment where adoption was hailed and was the miracle for everybody. Of course, when I was pregnant and unmarried, even though it was the 80s and um, certainly not the same like it was for my birth mother, uh, I still felt the same kinds of pressure and um, had a very religious upbringing. And so the church was really instrumental in keeping me uh, in line with adoption. Thank you for sharing all of that first and foremost, because I know that, you know, even as as helpers and healers and people that do this work, um, you know, we, we are really serious about sharing our stories and advocating and all of those things. But I also think it's important for people out there to recognize like this still is, even telling our stories is so much emotional labor and there is just so, much rawness to all of that. So I appreciate your your vulnerability and sharing all of that. It's taken a long time to get here, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine so. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Sure. It sounds like, and, and I think that Amy and I can both relate to this, of just your experience walking through the world really was crucial and you figuring out this is the kind of work I want to do. This is what I want to like dedicate my career and my life to. Were there moments, because I know that even after working directly with kids, like you work closely with Jennifer, you guys have Adoption Savvy. Can you tell a little bit about um, like the things that you're doing today for people that maybe aren't familiar with your work? Sure. Um, so I transitioned into working mostly with adult adoptees and birth mothers. And a lot of that is based on the work that Jennifer and I have done and really is around the group work that that I've done for a dozen years now. Jennifer and I started a birth mother group in the area and um, I remember at the time my supervisor was like, well, there you can go ahead and try, but they're not going to come. And I was like, oh, sure they will. You know, I'm going to have pizza and I'm going to, you know, <laughs> do creative fun things. And we're going to, you know, put our arms around them. And of course, we're going to have this, you know, great group experience. They'll come flying in. And I, Jennifer and I would go and sit at the office for about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. And when nobody showed up, we went to the Mexican restaurant down the street. And we <laughs> did that, I think, for almost a year. We literally showed up once a month, just the two of us, because we're like, if one more comes, that's that's a group, three people. Yeah. And it did finally. Uh, and we reached out to some of the agencies and a few of the agencies started referring some birth moms. So anyway, we started with a, a group after a while. And some of these ladies have been in our group now over a decade. Like wow. they are not leaving. They have, we've been through so much with them there were unions having more children and that bringing up so many things for them so anyway um the group piece uh my adult adoptee group was going gangbusters until covid 
and then um we just it completely morphed like everything else did to online but I yeah. it was a very strange phenomenon because the ones that had been so close and so connected in person I didn't really want to do online so it's kind of mm -hmm. changed into a new group and that's you know how those open kind of groups how they go anyway but out of the groups we have done um lots of retreats and mm -hmm. literally if I could make my whole career retreats and maybe someday I will uh that's what I'd like to do because that's hands-on people can be in a room it in their vulnerable states mm -hmm. share their stories for the first time and not have to go home and feed the kids you know after mm -hmm. that they can just be held by other people who get it um, we've done birth mother and adult adoptee groups and done some really just transformative activities uh, with them. And I've gotten to see exponential growth and healing over those. So that's kind of why my um, practice has really changed. I love the kids. I love the work with kids. But I feel like my calling really is uh, now in the adult work and communicating and advocating. I feel like emotional almost listening to you and like the best way. I, I just want to say thank you for that work. And I, like I'm getting emotional because thank you for doing so much for birth moms. I think that when we talk about this narrative, it is our birth moms are always, I feel like just so left out of the conversation and there's so much stigma and there's just mm -hmm. so much unnecessary noise around their stories that really prevents us from being able to meet their needs and, and just show up for them in the way that they need. Mm -hmm. Trauma is healed through relationships and to be able to provide groups and retreats where people are able to just like lean into a space where they don't have to be so alone with all of the heaviness in that. I mean, like what a tremendous gift and light that you are for for these women and I just know like I can't even imagine right like I I'm an adoptee and I I've never relinquished a child or placed a child but I have children and I can't even imagine that additional layer and so just to to be able to to provide that community I mean I literally am like getting emotional about how powerful there is not enough work out there for for birth moms to be seen and to be held in that. So thank you so much. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for the thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, 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 it's, 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 she's so spot on though. It's like, even as you were speaking of that, and I know like Amy and I, we have this added layer too of, you know, our birth moms just are in a different country, different, you know, culture, all of those things. And I just know seeing firsthand how that has impacted her how that's impacted me, how that's impacted our relationship and how we connect to each other. And so it's like this beautiful work that you are doing of like merging both of those things. And I know that it comes from such a place of rawness and pain because like that's your experience too. And so I I just give you so, so, so much admiration for, for the work that you do. Really. Bless you both. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> yeah. When you were saying merge the work, uh, ultimately, that is so important to me um, for a couple of reasons. But one is like even um, last night, 
in my adult adoptee group, I showed a skit that we did recently and it's uh, around birth mothers specifically. And um, they were, they were, you know, they were laughing and it's a parody and they're laughing and just um, appreciating it. But then the feedback at the end was really around not having any understanding or um, ability, not ability. It's not about their capacity. It's just that they haven't been exposed to the experience of the birth mother mm-hmm. and you know, I'm always recommending the girls who went away that book and the the film a, a girl like her, and I think that that's been transformative for several adoptees who've had a lot of feelings towards their birth parent and have hasn't they had no um really no understanding really what the culture was. You can't you can't have adoption as just this alone island it it lives in a culture that hails it and says this is how we want fixed transfixed on that moment of deep Mm -hmm. healing for both of them and all the rest of us who got to witness it so yeah I get chills as you describe that of like like that those are powerful powerful moments to witness or even just to hear about. And I actually think that's a perfect segue because in order to get to those healing moments, it's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So a lot of our listeners out there may be familiar with that term that's kind of become really popular in adoption language is coming out of the fog. And, you know, I think that that can hold different meaning for everyone. I think everybody has their own individual journey moving through that process. But that is something that we're here to talk about today, because I think just like those moments you were just describing, it does require doing a lot of this work of going through this, you know, unfogging thing that we all have to go through. So Amy, I'm curious, can you, for any of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with that term, you do a lot of work around this. How do you describe the fog or coming out of the fog to people? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I love to tell people is that it isn't just a term talking about uh, a metaphor of coming out of this murkiness where we don't have clarity and awareness, uh, but it's also an acronym. Mm -hmm. And it's so we're coming out of the FOG, the fog, which is caused by fear, obligation, and guilt. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's super important to understand that the fog is, it's, not just because we don't get it or things look blurry. It's because we have motivators that are holding us in this place and it's protective. Yeah. We look at it as this really negative thing. And I honestly did not like the term. I I really shied away from it for a long time because I thought, yeah, it's like, it's very judgy is the way it sounded, you know, like I'm out of the fog and you're not, ha ha ha. But as we uh, adoptees continue to try to find the perfect metaphor to describe what our lives are like, uh, you know, it really does a good job. And as an acronym, I think does a really good job of telling us like you are in a, um, you're in a transitional time. Um, and it's because you have things like total terror 
uh, around what it will be like to drop what you've believed your whole life and move into a different understanding. Mm -hmm. Or you feel completely obligated to people that you are scared you might lose. Again, back to the fear. We have that that total abandonment uh, and rejection piece that we just can't escape. That's there. And then we feel guilty if we try to look at adoption, you know, in a different way than the way we were raised. Yeah. So I say that coming out of the fog, it occurs in these phases as awareness emerges. So it's really stages of awareness as one confronts processes and resolves, which of course, there's not going to be one day of I've resolved everything and I am healed and moving on, but we can resolve some of these ongoing, uh, patterns of behavior. We can resolve some of the ways trauma has impacted us over time and move on to freedom. That's Mm. ultimately what I want for all of us. Yeah. There's so much hope in that, I think, and that, you know, it offers so much possibility to be able to navigate things at a, at our own pace and be seen throughout that process. I love the acronym um, of it. I also have always struggled with it because I felt like it just wasn't an inclusive enough phase, right? Like it's not an experience where like, you know, nothing about your adoption to all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's behind me and I've moved on, right? Like we a hundred percent of our lives are adoptees. And so a hundred percent of our lives are impacted by this experience. Um, but the acronym, I think, does such a beautiful job at like how you said how we're transitioning into different levels of awareness and letting that stuff integrate and making meaning of how this has impacted us and challenging back on those worldviews. And I just love that. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And not to for anybody out there that's listening that really enjoys that term or, you know, responds to that, you know, metaphor in that way. That's totally fine. We're not saying that there's one right way to do this. Right. But I do think it's interesting that all of us kind of had that similar reaction of like, we didn't love the, you yeah. know, coming out of the fog as a metaphor. I found that I deeply resonated with the acronym of it, though, because mm. that was over, you know, all of my healing, what I figured out that was what was kind of keeping me trapped in some of those patterns, or those were some of the biggest impacts for me. And I think that whether I've, I've heard people talk about it as, you know, coming to awareness, coming into consciousness, mm. I've, you know, kind of attached to the word of like, I've had to deconstruct my mm. ideas around adoption. But I think overall, it's this process of, you know, learning and unlearning that we're having to go through for our entire lives. Like there is no like finish line for this, unfortunately. I love that you use the word deconstruct because that's phase number five. And and we're going to dive into it. We are going to dive into it. So some of the work that Amy has done, and it it is amazing. I encourage people, and we'll talk about at the end, to go to their website to check some of this stuff out. Can you, though, Amy, you have really beautifully kind of, you know, broken down these different phases. Can you share those with us and like a little bit about what each of those would entail for an adoptee? Let, let me nod to the original research. Uh, mm-hmm. We took the uh, study from 2007 that Penny Borders and Portnoy did called Reconstruction of Adoption Issues. I remember running across that on the internet somewhere uh, back when it came out. And I was like, oh, it re-, you know, it really grabbed me that, wow, these are 
phases. I could see myself in all the phases. And then um, as I moved forward in my work and certainly working with adult adoptees so much, uh, seeing that the the five phases to me was not enough. Um, and so Jennifer, Jennifer Joy Phoenix is someone I affectionately call my work wife. And, um, and more than that, she's really a journey mate. She's also a birth first parent and she, uh, she and I have done our work with the, um, birth mothers for a long time and done the retreats together. And so she and I sat down and said, we see these five, but there's some that haven't been addressed, uh, some other phases that we're aware of. And then we interviewed our groups and talked to them about different um, things that they'd experienced. But once you start looking at it, you know, I'm I'm a person that needs a framework, desperately needs some kind of framework, uh, a grid to place things on. I can't just abstractly uh, understand a concept. I have to un- I have to know where we're going, especially mm-hmm. as we get into some of the phases that are deeply terrifying. They are scary. And are we ever going to come out of them? And knowing um, that some people don't come out of them and that we've lost people in in our healing walks. Um, so wanting to get really specific about what you might experience coming out of the fog and to put language around it and to normalize it, um, that you are not, you know, most adoptees, we felt so alone in working through all these things. And you talk about deconstructing your whole life and having to do that alone. Like that's, that's just unconscionable that we are not, uh, you know, given a roadmap for, for healing this deep trauma that got handed to us right away in our lives. So that I wanted to say where the research came from and that Jennifer and I worked through this together uh, we see the first four phases um, as really just that. It's like subconscious strategies a lot of times. Sometimes it's absolutely conscious, but other times it's just the way we have navigated life as youngsters, um, and it's how we've had to cope. So the first four are really just defending and staying out of the the conflict the internal conflict or the external conflict with our family and society, uh, and then moving to just more awareness until it kind of wrecks our life. And then uh, how do we come out of being wrecked and sort of developing into our authentic selves? I'm sitting with that because that was such a great explanation. And yeah, and I love, I think it's super helpful how you guys, um, you know, categorize them in a way and not to say that any of this is linear. A lot right. doesn't, a lot of it doesn't have to be linear, but right. I, it right. was really helpful to me to see it as like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, in those four phases, I did a little bit of that. And that first four, you know, I did a little bit of that before I kind of got to those later phases. So I think that's helpful for people. Also, one thing I, I do want to point out is we, there's a difference between coming out of the fog and really being on the trauma recovery healing path. There, there's overlap, 
but really I feel like we have to come out of the fog before we can enter into those really deep stages of healing work. Uh, can't do that when you're in the fog for sure. Uh, and like I said, some of it kind of overlaps as we go along. Um, and great point that Marcella said, we're not, it's not linear. We're, there's going to be things that catapult us back uh, maybe to a phase we thought was over two decades ago, yeah. but there, you know, some life event can happen and just shock us. Uh, and there we are defending again, or, you know, back to day one, we're disengaging. It's uh, yeah, definitely not linear, but I think I see the transitions uh, do move towards a, a resolution so yeah. we can hop off into deeper healing. What I love about this framework is, I mean, when you talk about living in your authentic being in your authentic way, that's such a privilege that I think not adoptees don't necessarily realize. And I'm not saying like everybody has easy access because I understand a lot of people have like other stuff too, but how hard it be for us to really like get to know what that, who that authentic person really is or what that authentic being really is. But I think what this framework does is it really normalizes the honesty of going through this experience and really breaks it down for people to be like, yeah, this is normal, which I think removes so much shame because the narrative tells us, oh, you should just suck it up. Are you like, why are you being so ungrateful? And like, that is so beaten into us and like all the messaging that we're getting from families, from community, from society, that it just makes it feel so much more unattainable to get to that authentic being like that privileged space of being able to do that. But I love how your framework just breaks it down in these bite-sized pieces for people to really feel seen. And you guys are modeling that in such a beautiful way through these groups and through community. And it just, it makes that feel so much more accessible. I think. Man, shame is, it's the big monster that we're all trying to fight. So Amy, can you walk us through, break it down a little bit for us, those first four phases that you were talking about and what those look like? Okay, so the first phase is the disengaging phase. This is where the adoptee doesn't consider adoption to have a positive or negative influence on their lives. Uh, The adoptee does not notice or acknowledge ways adoption may have impacted them. This is where somebody might have little or no curiosity around things like race, ethnicity, culture, biology, anything that might make them differ from their adoptive family they just you know have no curiosity about it um and then uh there's a lack of engagement around adoption issues and this can keep the adoptee from making that connection between the struggles they might have in their lives the the ones we hear all the time anxiety depression intimacy and relationships uh, there don't make that connection that any of that might have something to do with them being adopted, the, okay. those struggles. So the disengaging is, uh, a, I don't even think about adoption as an, as a factor in my life. Uh, it's why it's so harmful that people go to therapy for anxiety and depression on a regular basis and they're therapists never even touch adoption as something that might have something to do with anxiety and depression. 
I know. Yeah. Say it louder for the people in the back. Like seriously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like how do we all struggle with anxiety and depression and nobody thinks to ask, oh, were you adopted? Yeah. Might yes. that have something to do with it? Being yes. separated from yeah. your birth mother that you spent nine months bonding to in utero. Right. You were ripped away from her. Uh and you were put in a completely foreign environment mm -hmm. and lost everything in your life. But your anxiety and depression probably has to do with something else. Right. So right. for any clinicians out there listening, any adoptive parents, any adoptees themselves, if you're getting in touch or starting to work with providers, that is something to address. That is a hard conversation sometimes to have, but it is one that needs to be had. Yeah, absolutely. And you can just insist that they add, are you adopted to their intake paperwork? Mm -hmm. That would be an easy fix. Yeah. <laughs> Snaps again. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So disengaging is definitely one of those big, I love how you said it, like survival skills, protective measures that is taken to like not have to, to open up that box. Yeah. Here's something I find super interesting. So uh, my son is 34 and um, we've been in reunion, even though it was an open adoption at when he was about five or six, it sort of closed off. Mm -hmm. And um, about eight years ago, I went back to Texas, had a reunion with him and uh, I've seen him every couple of years since then in person. And uh, actually COVID was really great for our relationship because we were on zoom quite a bit during that time so I got to really know him but um in one of our initial meetings he uh, my best friend who is a therapist in Austin she went uh, with me to the meeting and he looked at both of us and he said you know is not being curious is that like okay is that like a thing because I'm just not curious about uh anything around my adoption and he's sitting there with his birth mother not really wanting even to engage a lot around adoption in that moment and I just thought it was such an interesting question because there was some awareness that not being curious was meant something I feel like it's almost kind of a way for us to, it's it's a way we like dissociate from the experience, right? It's a way for us to lessen the blow. It's a way for us to just kind of disconnect from that part of us that does hold all of this really heavy stuff. Yes. And I think it's a lot easier in some ways in a lot of environments, it's safer to chalk it up to, eh, just really don't care that much. Like, eh, like not that big of a deal. Not curious. Yeah. Right. And I can remember even being really little, because I, I, I entered reunion pretty young. I was 15, but I remember being like really little and my dad making these offerings like, hey, if you ever wanted to search for your birth mom, I hope you know I would support you. And I remember just being like, yeah, whatever. No, like, nah, <laughs> don't, like, why would you even bring that up? Like, don't even care. Don't even want to know about that. Right. And now realizing like my aggressiveness in that was just such like coming from like the deepest protective place of me. Like, why would you even mention that dad? Like, like, what are you trying to do here? Right. But like, I'm not curious. Yeah. It was such like, I, I take the stance that it's not like scientifically, biologically, it's not possible for us to not be curious, but mm -hmm. it shows up in the symptom of like this dissociative, like, yeah, that's too close for comfort. So like, I'm just, 
yeah, it's just not in my, on my horizon. Well, and I was thinking too, when you were like, dad, why, why would I even, you know, it's, you're also saying I'm a hundred percent loyal to you. Like, why would I ever be curious? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah. that's my son's, you know, he's very, yeah. very close to his adoptive parents, which I want and I wanted for him, yeah. Yeah. but I want more for him. I get mm-hmm. it. I see that. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. So that disengaging, that is one of, that was the phase one. And yes. then phase two, I know we had talked about is denying. So can yes. you tell a little bit what that looks like? Sure. Um, Kind of back to those, uh, that fear, obligation, and guilt. We've got the, this is where the adoptee either knowingly or unknowingly, sometimes it's just a subconscious measure, uh, kind of like you were saying, Amy, it's just, it's just automatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's a fierce sense of loyalty, obligation, or gratitude towards your adoptive parents. And it could also be your biological family, depending on the story. Um, You know, there's, but there's, the adoptee is always the one who has to navigate feeling loyal and you know, not wanting to hurt someone's feelings because we are indebted to everyone around us for taking care of us. Um, they dismiss, the adoptee dismisses any internal or external cues or reminders that adoption may have played a significant role in their story. Adoption may be seen by the adoptee as having only a positive influence on one's life or no impact at all. Denying is where we really, uh, if someone were to ask you, do you want to search for your (laughs) birth mother? You deny that you would ever want to do that. Uh, And, you know, denying that, like my son is um, half Mexican and I'm like, I'm about as white as they get. Like, you're not going to learn about your cultural heritage from me. Um, And, but not like he even denies that part of himself Mm -hmm. and is not right now open to wanting to meet or learn more about that, even learn more, which to me is heartbreaking that you wouldn't want to just, if you're not ready to step off, wouldn't you at least want the information? And yeah. in the disengaging phase and in denying, we, we don't even want the, it's too much. We don't even want it. Yeah. And it like, it resonates so much um, because I remember like when I, with like that transracial piece, I think this is why mirrors are so important, like racial mirrors, cultural mirrors, all those mirrors are just so, so, so important. I remember being in school and being in Spanish, like one and just like skipping class because it was just too much for my system. Like all these other white kids around me were like speaking. And I didn't at the time realize it was because it was getting too much into like my grief. Like I lost my language. I lost my ability to speak in my native tongue. And so I would just like leave. And I was like, Oh, I just would rather just, I don't know. Like I would skip class. It was like the only time that I would skip school, but I would literally like, but could not, I didn't have a tolerance to be able to be in that class now I realize, oh my God, I was like swirling around all this grief. I was like, you know, kind yes. of in the same place. I just, that's why I think mirrors are just so crucial when we're talking about adoption and placement for, especially kids of, you know, ethnic and racial backgrounds that are yes. potentially different than adoptive family. 
Marcella, have you shared on your podcast uh, your idea about language? Um, I don't know if it was your original idea, but I've told many people your uh, belief around not just a child being offered learning the language, uh, but an adoptive parents should have yes. to. Yeah. Yes. And if just... you're adopting a child whose native language is different, you should be obligated to also Absolutely. do the work to learn that language. Yeah. yeah. Let's use obligation in a different way. Yes, you you guys be obligated to do yeah. something. We're we're obligated enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. But that's another powerful one. And the, the denying is, I mean, I see all of these, these phases with clients that I work with or just adoptees mm -hmm. that I know, but the denying one, I think is a really, a really big one. And then, um, so phase three then goes into defending. I'm noticing they're all D's too. So yeah, yeah. defending. What does that one yeah. look like? Yeah. Get those, get your dukes up. So the adoptees resistant to any suggestion <clears throat> that adoption may have an impact on their lives. Uh, adoptee wants to be considered no different than people who were born biologically to their parents and does not want to be pathologized or pitied. Those two words, who we do not want either one. Mm -hmm. Adoptees may defend their adoptive or biological family, not wanting to hurt them in any way. Adoptees also may defend being adopted as something that makes them special, chosen, or part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. And we put that in quotes because it can be used in all kinds of contexts and usually not in a good way. Right. For the yeah. adoptive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then phase four of discerning, what mm -hmm. does that one look like? So we're moving into un having an, some more awareness. Uh, the adoptee begins to have an awareness of the issues. And then they start to recognize the societal and familial forces at play that have either influenced or pressured them to be in the previous phases to deny or defend. Uh, but they still may see adoption as mostly positive. The adoptee starts to discern the impact of adoption on their life, which is often prompted by a developmental stage or significant life event, such as a birth, a death, a marriage. Um, any of those biggies can just all of a sudden go, wait a minute, mm -hmm. how can I yeah. not look at my racial identity when I just had a child that is part of that? I yeah. see that all the time, like yeah. in marriage and getting pregnant, I think are like such big, big markers, big markers for people joining, at least in my practice. I see a lot of that's when a lot of people reach out. It's yes. like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I, like all of me realized like I'm actually an adoptee, right? Like that logical versus embodiment and knowing like I'm an adopted person. It sounds funny maybe to say out loud, but I think there's like so many people I don't think have fully embodied the fact like that you are the adoptee that you're talking about because wow. there's such like that sense of separateness with that experience. If you're disengaging yeah. totally and denying you that it doesn't sound silly. It's exactly not it, it is the unembodied life of the adoptee. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And squashing so we, it down in any of these, it's, it's a form of survival, right? And I know yeah. that Amy and, and I have talked about this in so many episodes, like we have really 
miraculous ways that our systems help us to survive and not repeat all of the trauma and all of those kinds of things. And even as you were talking and I was looking at these, these different phases, what was really like starkly apparent to me was like how much they mirror our just survival states, right? Like the fight, flight, freeze, on, like all of those kinds of things, you know, with the disengaging, it's kind of like the freezing, you're cut off from yourself. The denying is like, I'm just going to avoid it. I'm going to run away. The defending is when you're fighting. And just, I think this, the fog and the acronym you use of that fear, obligation, and guilt that just controls us it makes this perfect territory to people, please. So when we talk about why adoptees have such fierce protective systems, like this is what we're talking about on any given day, we're jumping between all of these different ways to navigate with all of the internal and external pressures. And I think that that overlap is like really significant. Absolutely. And you said that really important word earlier about dissociation. Yeah. I mean, that is for our survival. Yeah. If you run into a bear, you want to have fight, flight, or freeze come to your rescue. Well, maybe not freeze. And that's mine. And I always say the bear will eat me because I won't <laughs> run or, you know, but we want to be able to dissociate so we can live through the horror of trauma. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. For sure. it, it is horrifying to go up against your parents. It Mm -hmm. is horrifying. And this actually is a nice lead in to the next phases, but it, we are so resistant to the terror that we always have an awareness is there. You know, it's, I've heard it over and over again as, and, and in my own world, it was the abyss. Like Mm -hmm. I could see the abyss. I'm peeking over the side. I know if I step into that, I'm probably not coming back. That's what it feels like. You know, it's going to swallow me up. So I'm not going there. So I better keep denying. I better keep defending and plug my ears. So I'm not discerning. Yeah. Well, to keep things status quo, right? I was just having this conversation, you know, with with people of we will decide or not. It's not even a conscious, it's not even a decision. It's just like we will keep ourselves in situations that feel familiar, even if they're very uncomfortable, like just because our systems really love predictability, love what's familiar. And if this is the stuff that we've known our entire lives, the idea, even if like that abyss looks wonderful in there and it's like, oh, my God, that looks really nice. I'd like that. I'd like that. We will still stay out of it because the abyss is unpredictable and we don't have a roadmap for that. We, we know how to navigate. And I tell people like we've, as adoptees, we've learned the script. We know the script. We know what we're supposed to say. We know what, you know, everybody wants to hear. And sometimes even though it's at our detriment, it does feel safer to stay in that zone. Well, yeah, I, I work a lot with the structural dissociation model and theory in, in work with like healing trauma related dissociation and like that abyss, I think you're describing as like what we would call the annihilation fear. Like I literally feel like I'll be annihilated if I get in touch with X, Y, or Z. And so I think we just do all these like really brilliant, you know, distractions of I'm going to create this illusion that I'm safe or like this illusion that I can tolerate or that I'm in control because it literally distracts me from the grief of getting in touch with what's bubbling underneath the surface of 
I lost, like I sort of, I had to live through this, like this very deep primal relinquishment that my system holds the belief around that, like, I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. I'm not like, you know, even meant to be here. And so it really helps distract us, I think, from like that deep raw pain that's literally like a like milligram away from getting in touch with, right? Like all that time of just yes. a dance. Yeah. Thank you for basically describing phase five there. Uh, that was beautiful. Um, because it's your Amy energy. You guys are doing that together. For sure. so I'm, I'm this. <laughs> I love it. Um yeah, so you really did uh, as we look at deconstructing. It's it's basically like the adoptees like to control our lives because at the very beginning everything that was familiar was gone in an instant. And I think we're constantly uh when you were talking about predictability Marcella, I think we are constantly looking to go back to yeah. that symbiotic state where things were familiar and and we didn't have to have to adapt to something new like we did so so early in our lives and so phase five is about deconstructing um here i'll read i'll read what it says the adoptee fears the fallout from questioning their long-held beliefs about adoption confusion and ambivalence take over as the adoptee faces the knowledge that they can no longer live in the fantasy of their carefully constructed adoption narrative they fear being abandoned again by those who view uh, adoption as different from their own felt experience and are terrified that the abyss we were talking about of emotions that they've repressed for a lifetime will engulf and eventually drown them. I'm sure you hear it. I hear it all the time. I, I don't think I'll come back if, you know, if I step into it, it's, it's going to eat me alive. Yeah, I think there's just this like in, innate knowing that once you go there, like once you cross that threshold, like nothing will be able to be the same. It's like the opening Pandora's box or the like, oh my gosh, it's like everything exploded from the messy closet and it's like impossible to put it back the way that it was. And I think that for us as adoptees, there is that innate inherent knowing because way way early on pre-adoption pre all of this trauma like there like things were just different and things had to like take this really crazy like left turn and like we our systems know that our systems remember that I've been watching uh because I do have several clients who are in um this recovery work too adoptees um but I've been watching a lot of those documentaries about people coming out of cults. Mm -hmm. And if yep. you look at these phases, very similar to, uh, you know, there's, it, it is a brainwashing when, oh, 100%. You, when you are in a system that denies your own experience and is trying to tell you that something you know to your core is wrong yeah. when somebody's trying to get you to believe that it's not only right but it's right for everyone 
it's you should too you know it is the way to be yeah um, when we they go through all the same you know denying defending and then you see those people that have some discernment before they know that for them to choose to come out of any kind of coercive experience they are going to have to deconstruct everything they have been believing totally I don't think it I don't think that's taking a turn at all I have found that myself just within my own personal Mm. journey of things and I think that whether it's within adoptive homes just societally adoption agencies adoption support groups like there is such a parallel such an overlap with those like cult-like behaviors and mindsets and frameworks yeah which, Which I think we're just like, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I'm ready to hear you. No, I just like, I think if you were to say that to the average adoptive parent, like, I'm curious, like how that would land, right? Because when we think cult, I think- Not every- great, I've tried it. Disclaimer, yeah. I've tried it, it doesn't go great. <laughs> it's just, but it's like such a brilliant comparison, honestly. And I think like going back to what you were saying even earlier, you know, when we think we have things sorted out and then a life experience happens and we're like, oh gosh, this totally just derailed me and pushed me way outside my window of tolerance. I think this is such like a good place to remind people, like you might get so far in your journey or your experiences, and then you might be leaning in a little bit more, like maybe you enter reunion and maybe up until that point, like you had just done a lot of like other exploring and understanding of what it meant for you to be an adoptee. And then like the whole story of, you know, finding out why you were placed might be completely different than what you had always already been told. And it might push you way back further and make you feel like you're kind of climbing that ladder again, like through these phases. But I think it's important to remind people that this is like you were saying earlier, not a super linear thing. And that this is something that you might just be ping ponging back and forth in that game of whack-a-mole of just like <laughs> one part feels like it's sorted out. Another part of it, like kind of just like pops up and is like, oh yep. gosh, I have to like figure yep. some stuff out over here again. That's just for people listening. I think that's super normal. And as we go through these phases, I can like very much feel when I was there and how sometimes mm-hmm. I get back thrown in this five phase, like this fifth, like all the time, like re I've been in reunion now longer than I've been out of reunion. And it's still something that I is just one of like the most beautiful and equally most painful things that I'm constantly, you know, that Pandora's box of having to yes. get more yes. questions and answers sometimes. So mm-hmm. Well, and I didn't say in the the last phase when we were talking about milestones that happen uh, and it's when people reach out to therapists a lot, you know, at one of the milestones that happens is reunion. You know, some, an adoptee who gets uh, contacted by a birth parent or even themselves, you know, I'm just going to do a DNA test and try to, you know, when people go into reunion some long-held firmly held beliefs they've had their whole life all of a sudden get completely challenged and then we start deconstructing yeah that's a good important thing to to add on there yeah so phase five was deconstructing phase six is drowning which sounds super fun yeah tell us about that one it is a party yeah (laughs) drowning um been there a couple of times yeah yeah yeah, this week Uh uh-huh so as feared the adoptee is now flooded by intense emotions while facing the compounded losses in their story 
Their anger, resentment, and sorrow may be directed at their biological parents, adoptive parents, themselves, society, church, the adoption system. I say anybody and everybody. The adoptee may also experience a shock to their nervous system during the onslaught of conflicting emotions, which can result in an emotional shutting down. Mm. Uh, they'll need to move through all the stages of grief or risk getting stuck in this phase. This is where I see a lot of people just, they feel like they're going crazy. I can't stop crying. I'm not a crier, but I can't stop crying. How many times have you heard that mm -hmm. as a therapist? Because yeah. it's repression. You know, all those emotions that mm -hmm. have been repressed, we can't deny anymore. We can't uh, give other people excuses anymore. We can't mm -hmm. figure out how to dissociate anymore. We're feeling, we're feeling, we're feeling, and we're flooded. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think yeah. this is the phase two where so many complexities join the already massive amount of dysregulation because not only do they feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going crazy. A lot of adoptees have the experience of literally being told like you are crazy. Like you are blowing this way out of proportion. And so yes. much pressure happens. I think right here where people fall mm -hmm. relationships with family, because they're so invalidated. There's not any attunement to what that, like why they're actually got to this point or how they got to this point. Yeah. And there's so many adoptive parents that are like, well, they never talked about it. So what, I don't think they were ever thinking about it, which is just a misattunement right there. But like all the way up to this this point, right? And there's so much resistance, yeah. so much rupture that happens that it makes it even more complex than to be navigating like this drowning phase. Yes. Mm -hmm. Literally doing it, feeling I'm completely isolated. I'm doing this now with absolutely no support because nobody believes what I'm walking in. Yeah. Yeah. It makes so much, I feel like for those, those beginning stages, right? Like ruptures and misattunements were already happening for even us to have to be pushed into those phases. And then for these phase five and six, this is where I see, especially for like adoptive parents, it's like they go into crisis mode because all of this stuff is coming out that they never got educated on, never believed was a thing, you know, all of this stuff. And then understandably so, because it's really hard to see your child like this, you yep. panic. And then I think this is the place where I see so often where more harm is done in terms of we're going to punish, we're going to send you to the mm -hmm. hospital, we're going to, you know, send you to military school, yes. we're kicking you out of the all of these really drastic Yep. measures that when we look at how you like really beautifully survive this or describe this drowning phase it's like those are the exact opposite of the things we need to be doing like we need to be throwing somebody a life jacket yes, or a life absolutely. preserver mm -hmm. instead of being like oh hey like hope you can swim down there or like come back when you're you know better or like whatever it is and it just it makes me like it gets my my years grinding because mm -hmm. it's just this is where parents society providers everybody just really abandons us again like when we're really in the thick of it again and it's yeah it's it's really sad to me I think all of us perked up when we talked about this, like there's so much passion, just like entered the conversation. <laughs> our, but this is our fight response. We're this ready to let like, go ham on everybody. But this <laughs> is, I think it's like, there's so much passion coming out because I think all of the three of us have this very felt sense of like, I, I have lived this unfortunate, you know, walk before I have been drowning yes. and I absolutely refuse to let another human being do this Amen. in isolation. Like, this is yeah, why I yeah. do the work I do. Like, even when I'm feeling burnout, 
this is why I get up every single day and do what I do. So not another brother or sister of mine ever have to know this level of grief. And if they do know this level of grief, I absolutely will do everything in my power to know that they a hundred percent are not walking it alone. So yeah. like, thank you for what you do. Like, as I sit and listen, I'm just like every single agency out there needs this framework. Every yes. single parents needs to be tested on this before that, before placement happens. Like what you are like throwing out today, I think every single person needs it broken down in this way. This is so, so powerful, but like, well, this is uh, like, like, this is life-saving stuff. So, life like I, I want people out there to understand that. And it does not mean that any adoption is going to happen without trauma and loss and difficult stuff, but this is the stuff being educated and proficient and integrating this stuff is what helps to save our lives literally. Yes. And I'm not like yes. exaggerating when oh, I say yeah. that. Um, like we are in crisis, our community yep. is in crisis. And yep. this is the stuff that non-adopted people can do and educate themselves on so that they can be true allies. Like if you're, if you are not competent in this stuff, you, you gotta, you gotta do some more work. Yes. Yes. So that's my soapbox. Anyway, Amy, you can continue with your phase seven and eight now. Oh, we're, look at us. We're in the soapbox (laughs) together. Yeah. We are. are. Um, No, I think when you, like people tend to think we're being dramatic, but it's crazy that you, you brought this up that it's not crazy. Um, The, the drowning phase, like we do lose people in this phase. Mm-hmm. that isolation Amy was talking about like like there's we've been there we know the psychic pain that happens when you are completely alone in this kind of grief when Oof. you are being confronted with emotions that for an entire lifetime have been denied it, it it's it's not for sissies we have to <laughs> We there have- is no other pain like it. Like for, right. for anybody non-adopted out there, it's like, there's not even worse. Like you, you will never know what that is, but it is, I would not wish it on my worst enemy. Like I, I really wouldn't. In our, uh, Jennifer and I did a presentation last year for untangling our roots. Uh, and we talked about this particular, the fog phases for the adoptee. And when we got to this drowning phase we took a moment we lit a candle and talked about the people we've lost in our work and in our lives and so it is not a joke this this is we do we are passionate because people deserve to live past the drowning phase they deserve to live their authentic selves and not be told they're crazy for feeling their true feelings. Totally. This is the first recording we've ever done where now twice I feel emotional <laughs> because I think it's, but it's like not something I'm, I'm like, le- I'm leaning into it. I'm not like leaning out of it. I think because yeah. it just, for me, I feel like a big warm hug knowing other people doing this work that have the same passion. It makes me feel less crazy because even doing this work as an adoptive <laughs> clinician, sometimes I feel like I'm the one standing alone on the like the yes, top, yes, like screaming yes. with my little megaphone and everyone's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, lazy lady up there, just like let her do her thing, whatever. Right. But I just feel so seen from the this framework that you've put out. And I just, I don't know, like like Marcella was saying, we can't underestimate how life saving this 
these conversations are like truly, truly, truly life-saving. So thank you. Well, you've given me goosebumps like <laughs> 16 times already. So she's good at that. Amy's really good at that. Awesome. Really at that. <laughs> All right. So phase seven. Yes. Life beyond the drowning phase. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So the adoptee recognizes and begins to accept that there are both gains and losses in adoption and that the overwhelming grief from ambiguous loss and the desire to protect others will no longer rule their lives or determine their future. They begin developing a more integrated sense of self based on all aspects of their adoption story. Easier said than done. Yes, this takes time. And this is something like phase seven, this developing. This is, I think, where, you know, get your supports in place, find your people, find your community. Because like we've all said at this in this episode, um, like that relational trauma is healed in connection and through relationships. So yeah, so there's there's hope there. There is hope. Yeah. And And what about phase eight is deciding. So as we're developing, we're moving towards deciding uh, that we are going to lean into this new identity that's emerging. Um, So as pain subsides, there can be a pride that might replace shame or uh, just like a pride around you are the only one who has your story. Mm. It is so unique. And you can pick and choose. I did like that part of, you know, my adoptive parents divorced when I was four, each remarried. I went back and forth between the homes. Um, and then I was in reunion at 23. Uh, so I have lots of families, but I, you know, I don't have to just take what's handed to me. I get to pick and choose what becomes a part of my identity, what I want to take forward in my story. So the adoptee decides how they'll move forward in life and in their relationships with increasing clarity and autonomy. The adoptee embarks on or continues on the next leg of the lifelong journey, the healing path, which we talked about earlier. This is different. Um, and once you come out of that drowning phase, you you think you're done, you're healed forever. Uh, but unfortunately, it's um, we're not probably going to go to that place again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are going to still have times that we do get taken back to places. Yeah. Yeah, it's an ongoing journey. And I think that that's something that for adoptees listening, you know, again, just normalizing it, I think for adoptive parents or even clinicians, this is again, why there is not going to be any finish line, like there is no graduation date. I work with a lot of families that are like, okay, well, like, when will it be better? Like, when will this like not be a thing? And it's never going to not be a thing. Maybe it doesn't have to be something that is all consuming, right? Right. Or that is just like, you know, getting ping ponged through all these different protective means, but it's always going to be a thing, right? The mindset of like, oh, there'll be a day where like, we don't have to worry about this anymore is not is not realistic. And I think that that can actually bump adoptees back into some of those survival states. So I think that that's just really important of like, this is going to be a non-linear 
bouncing back and forth between stages, lifelong journey that, you know, adoptive parents or anybody that is in an adoptee's life needs to like buckle up for. And if you can't hang, then you can't hang. <laughs> that's, I know that that's very blunt, but I love it. Yeah. Some people just can't the hang. There's a lot of people, especially at that drowning phase. Like I had to find out the hard way, like you can't hang. And, you know, it was really hard, but I can also acknowledge now, like my life is much better for it. And I can live life much more authentically because I don't have people in my life that just like are with it and can't hang. Just happen to be at the same stages right now. Um, so the adoptee is in the drowning phase and these are specifically ones very much in the anger phase. They've not been, page one was gone a long time ago. They've been in the deconstructing and drowning phase for a while. And the they came into reunion with a birth mother who, it was closed adoptions uh, and Perhaps the birth mother, you know, felt like she was the hero for what she did, that she made the right choice and picked the perfect family and she's drank the Kool-Aid. You know, she believes that everything beyond that was going to be unicorns and butterflies and roses for their child. And then they come into reunion. They are still in the defending phase, like the, the the birth mother denying defending and they're defending what they did. But I gave you a good home. But I, you know, but I did the right thing for you. Everybody told me to go on with my life. And, and this adoptee is over here screaming in the drowning phase and, you know, gets angrier and angrier uh, that this child, uh, that this birth mother doesn't see their pain. Yeah. And you guys, you know, we're educated people here. So, you know, you've used really great words around what this experience is like, but it's hard to tell yeah. a birth mother who's meeting her child that your, your child is in this, this unexplainable kind of grief and pain. Right. Um, you need to be able to meet that regressed child because a lot of times we see so much regression um, and you need to be able to meet them with your apologies that don't have a but at the end yeah. is what I've heard. You know, I'm sorry, yeah. but I gave you the right yeah. life. Yeah. It's like yeah. the book, the love languages. I always mm -hmm. think the way I describe it is, is like, you guys have to speak each other's trauma language. Like you're in different, like different trauma you're speaking from a different trauma point. You're speaking from a different lens. And like, that's kind of how I always think about it, what, what mm -hmm. you're describing. And it's like the mom might have had to drink the Kool-Aid because that's like how she was able to survive. Like I have Absolutely. to believe that what I'm doing is in the best interest of my child. Because yes. again, it's like that distraction from that real raw pain of I'm losing my child. And, you know, and so it's like that Kool-Aid, you know, that's like, and then like the adopt, you know, I think it's just like how we're all like our vantage point at where we are in these processes and are coming out of the fog. Um, but I, I think that what you say is so, so, so important because it, like we can be misattuning just because we're just such in deep, deep, deep protective states in our own stuff. Right. And it makes so much sense. Like I don't say yes. any, like, any judgment or any, like right. anything like that, but it's just like, we have to be mindful of it. And I think it's important that you name that so that we can have hopefully reunions that can be just a little bit more tender around 
yes, I'm holding my grief. My grief makes sense. And I also see you and your grief and your grief also makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Much more attuned that way. Yeah. But I think that speaks to, you know, something we were talking about of like some of the just societal stigmas and false narratives or one-sided narratives about adoption in general like that, right? Many birth mothers are told, this is the right thing. You're doing the right thing. You're the hero for all of these kinds of, you know, the stuff that you're doing. And those stigmas for going through these phases can be really damaging. And I Mm -hmm. think it either keeps people in those beginning stages or those Mm -hmm. beginning phases of the fog, or it makes it even harder to be in the later stages. What are some ways that adoptees can take care of themselves throughout this Mm, process? Because that is huge. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, like we talked about what's broken in relationship has to be healed in relationship, community, community, community. Um, You know, I was adopted in the sixties. I was the only adopted person I met uh, until I went to college. And then I, the two people that I met in college that were adopted had both had reunions and both had basically wrecked their biological family's lives by showing up on the doorstep. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, you know, I wasn't going to do that. And then, uh, yeah, no community. But now, you know, like the community you guys have created online here with your your followers, your listeners, um, like, thank goodness we have the ability now to connect with community. I, I believe every person needs a journey mate um, because it is a lifelong journey. I have an adoptee journey mate and I have a birth mother journey mate. And, um, I just feel like I have to, uh, nurture those parts of myself, uh, along with somebody else who gets it. Um, I am finding that there are many, many more adoptee adoptees who become birth parents Mm. than I ever knew existed. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to create community also for that, uh, bringing that group together. So if any of you are listening and want to reach out to me, please email me because I'd like to start uh, to collect that group a little bit more because I think there's another layer for that particular for population. Sure. Um, but community in, uh, you know, having a therapist. <laughs> Obviously there's three of us sitting here. That's, you know, um, that's a way that we have to go through yeah. this journey. We, it's just this level of trauma. When you start your life off traumatized and when your grief is disenfranchised, like both of you have talked about when we have to go through life in these fog phases in order to survive our lives and to make sense of things, we have to have somebody help us sort it out. It's just, it's, it's very, very um, tough on your own. And, and when I started out, obviously there were no adoption competent therapists. 
when I was doing my initial work and I went therapist to therapist looking, you know, again, bringing anxiety and depression, those typical things, knowing that innate sense of knowing that something was deeply broken and Mm -hmm. I could, I didn't, I couldn't name it. I didn't know where, where it was located inside me. And I kind of like Amy, you were saying, like, I'm not going to let one person, not on my watch, not one more person has to try to put the pieces together on their own anymore. And so plenty of us uh, that way. And then all the self-care, you know, self-love is kind of a buzzword these days, but man, for the adoptee, we have got to learn how to go back and love that baby that we feel was abandonable, that was unlovable. We have to go back and nurture that child ourselves. And I, I, in reunion, I see a lot of adoptees wanting their birth parent to do that work for them. Yeah. And they have to be the one yeah. to love themselves now. We can't put that on someone else. It's it's our work to do. Yeah, thanks for naming that. For those I know that we have a lot of um, adoptive parents and like mm-hmm. like people in the supporting roles helping too. Are there any like words of wisdom that you would give to them in supporting an adoptee at these mm-hmm. various stages? I love that question. Um, yeah, adoptive parents, um, you know, I just see so many trying to reinvent the wheel in some ways. Uh, And I do think there is a lot of community available for them as well, and definitely encourage them to connect and to educate themselves. Um, You know, I, most of the adoptive parents that I've worked with over the years, I will refer one or both to their own individual work. Yes. Because I see them come, you know, with their child and they do feel like their child does have a wounding from their adoption story, uh, but they haven't seen where that overlaps with their own story and their own pain, their own losses, which, you know, kiddos know how to to push those buttons. And we don't even have to be kids anymore. As, as the adult child, we know how to push buttons. So I think adoptive parents have to have their own self-love, their own support systems, their own, uh, they need all the same things the adoptee needs, uh, they need. And then they need to be able to know these phases, know when your child is drowning. Yeah. My child is drowning. And that is a place where I have to be a life preserver as yeah. a parent. They need me. Yeah. So Amy, to, to wrap up, we're in the middle of NOM right now still. I know everybody is, you know, kind of getting inundated with all of this adoption related stuff. What sure. is a message that you have for adoptees as we continue through NOM for birth first parents, for adoptive parents, professionals, what would you want them to know or hear? I would say, first of all, there's no judgment on where you are in the fog. We've all been there, wherever you are. We've all been there. We all have to go through these phases. We have to go through 
our healing, we were harmed. We were traumatized and we have to heal and we all deserve to heal. Mm -hmm. And so if you are in a space where you are deconstructing or drowning and you need help, please reach out, Mm -hmm. please reach out. Um, As, as these wonderful ladies have, have said, we have a passion for helping during this time. And we're not the only ones. We're just energized by being together here, but there are plenty of people. You can't do this alone. So reach out if you're in a tough spot and, and you don't just get one pass. Like if you're in a tough spot again, you can reach out again. Like we have to be a supportive community with each other because this is, it, it is some of the hardest work a person can do. Um, and that self-love piece, I just think as we look at, you know, we talked in the deciding phase that there's a pride that can come. Uh, I remember reading that years ago and I was like, I finally get that, that I'm actually, before I was so angry at things that were thrust upon me. Mm-hmm. And now I'm very grateful I know that's like a buzzword for us, or that's a, that's a scary word. But, but you've reclaimed it, Amy. You've reclaimed it in Absolutely. what that means and what that is. Yeah. And in this season, uh, yeah, reclaiming thankfulness and gratitude, I really am grateful for the opportunity when I sit with a client, I have that lived experience and I've been through it and I can say, you're going to make it, you know, it doesn't feel like it, but you're going to get there. Um, But I, I even love the word reclaiming because I feel like Nam was, you know, sort of reclaimed from the agencies in the first place and uh, adoptees are reclaiming it as we, you want to talk awareness and adoption, Let's talk about awareness. Let's reclaim that. This has been such a rich conversation. I like you've just thrown out so many gems and so many takeaways. And thank you for sharing your energy and your, your words and your wisdom with all of us. Where can our listeners find you? How can they get in touch with you? Um, Adoptionsavvy.com is our website. And I do want to point to that because the fog phases we've been talking about today there's a button on the front page that, where you can find the fog phases, uh, not only for adult adoptees, but we have them for first birth mothers. And we yes. also have some for um, DCPs, donor conceived persons, and those Amazing. with NPE, uh, because that, you know, as, as we keep doing the work, uh, we're seeing a lot of overlap with genetic bewilderment. Like it's it's really important, I think, for us to join forces, yeah, yeah, others and and you know all of us be heard that this is this is no joke. Like yeah. just being denied mm-hmm. your own uh, identity is is not okay. It's not right. 
Yeah. I highly recommend though going to the website, you know, getting those there, you can get them printed out and you can get them so that you can, you know, continue to learn and educate yourself. So for anybody listening, go and print those out, learn more about this. We want to hear that there's like a huge uptick in traffic to the adoption savvy website <laughs> that everybody's listening has gone and downloaded these PDFs oh and all of this stuff. So I'm holding all of y'all listening accountable. Awesome. Yeah. I so hope they're helpful. I've, I've seen them be helpful and I'm so excited to have this chance to share them with more people. Thank you guys. Yeah. I, when we started this podcast a little over a year ago, we started during NAM and I had no idea what was going to come of it. Like I had no idea if it was going to be like two episodes and then we were like, ah, this is like too much. It's been a really cool journey. And I think that meeting you today has probably been one of the highlights on this journey. I really mean that not to sound like a complete mush mush, but I so value you. And I think that what you're doing and contributing to our community is invaluable. So thank you so, so, so much. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm this, we have to stay in connection because I think this is the start of another cool collaboration. I would love to to see more. Thank you so much. Much, much some more. (laughs) Much, much all day. Yes, yes, yes. Um, But thank you so much. For those of you tuning in, you can always reach out to us. We love hearing from you, your questions, your comments, your concerns. Just being in community with you is great on Instagram at Adoptees Podcast or shoot us an email over at adopteesdish at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and being in community with us. Together, we have the power to heal broken systems. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and tuning into Adoptees Dish. We want to give a special shout out to Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Google Podcasts, where you can now tune in and find all our episodes. If you like what you heard and want to continue the conversation, you can email us at adopteesdish at gmail.com or find us at Adoptees Dish Podcast on Instagram. Please share this podcast, talk with others, and always remember we have the power to heal broken systems. Tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you.